It's been a very hard and difficult week. I had such high hopes. I began celebrating our anniversary last Sunday in the mountains, North Carolina, enjoying the rain and the rhododendrons and thought, well, it's going to be good. Come back on short week. Ended, thought, well, at the beach with my daughter, the dad's and daughter's time yesterday. And start the mountains, end of the beach, think, well, what could be wrong? <laughs> A lot. It's the stuff in between. You know, as, as well as you know what we've been dealing with, dealing with other serious issues of leadership in our church, family, uh, turmoil in some ways, as then the car breaks down, you know? <laughs> it's like, it's never a break. You know, they get weeks like that. Or it just seems like it builds upon builds. Some folks have lives like that. Where it just seems to be no end. Genesis identifies one man that has a life like that. In Genesis 46 and 47. It's kind of a one of the summaries of his life. A turning point, if you will, at the age of 130. And he gives a summary to a, a powerful man about his life. He says, my life, years have been few and evil. I thought, wow. <laughs> Imagine that being your life. Few and evil. We think, well, the guy's 130. What can he complain about? Well, it's all relative. His daddy lived to be about 175. His father before him, 180. So... You know, he's a young man in comparison. He feels like life is waning. In fact, interesting enough, this man, Jacob, seems to be having a... He's got a thing with death. Let me just read to you a few passages that he seems to be just wanting death. He's, no man's ever been so eager for it. Genesis 37, 35, finding out about his son, his beloved son, Joseph, who he think has been... Destroyed by a wild animal. He says, all his sons and his daughters rose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. He says, I will find no consolation. I will die and I will die depressed, regardless of what you do. Genesis 42, 38. Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you. Referring to his beloved son, Benjamin, the only one left of his beloved wife, Rachel. He says, for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Genesis 45, 28. Israel, Jacob said, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And then the passage here, Genesis 46, 30. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face and you are still alive he seems to be eager to die even at this last admission he's going to live 17 more years (laughs) you know at the age of 130 but he is saying over and over and over again i'm going to die let me die just i need to die you're going to make me die yeah and that's kind of his thought and then describing his life it's few and evil you get the idea he wants it to be over with it's just been hard i'm ready to die Well, there's one important lesson that's got to occur before he does die. And that is the lesson of repentance. 
He has had moments in his life of, of blessing, of epiphanies, of realization, of theophanies, really, of, of God revealing himself through visions and other methods. And, and there have been moments where he has had great strides in stepping with the Lord, wrestling with God, having his name changed. And, and just like us, he's had his long periods of turning from God. In fact, you would say that it's probably been 22 years and even more. Uh, 22 years that his son's been absent, Joseph, and that he's essentially blamed God for it all and says that all things are working against me. God is not there. He's not working in my behalf. He's not pro- providing for the promises that he has said. He's made these statements about God, and that's kind of his, his thought toward it. And that's been the last 22 years of just being uh, comfortless and inconsolable in his grief and his thoughts and belief about God. But even before that, there were... Uh, long periods where he exalted people before God. And not only did he exalt people, he craved for blessing and prominence. He exerted his will over others, including God. And that's been kind of the hallmark of his life. It has been someone, even at the very beginning, remember, if you were studying with us, even how he was born, he was grasping for his brother's heel as they were born at the same time, trying to supplant his brother, how he got his name, supplanter, deceiver. Uh, trying to grasp, and I think it is a metaphor of his life, that this is a, a picture of a man always grasping for something to give fulfillment and meaning to his life. Interesting that he describes his life as few and evil. But there is a real turning point that takes place in this chapter. Genesis 46, we'll read from this point to 47. We're going to learn three more important lessons about repentance. Just in way of review, his brothers have been reunited with Joseph, whom they betrayed and sold into slavery. And after 22 long years, there is a reuniting that takes place. But before they do so, the brothers display repentance. In fact, we think that as we study the text, that repentance is the thing that motivates Joseph to reveal who he is before his brothers and that there can be real reconciliation that occurs, but only after repentance takes place on his brother's behalf. But before his brothers repented, there was forgiveness in Joseph's heart. Did you know that you can forgive someone before they repent? And so not reconciliation, but forgiveness takes place. But. There's one person that has not yet demonstrated repentance, and that's dear dad, Jacob. We see that here. So let's read this together. Let's study and let's stand as we read this together. Genesis 46, starting with verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his offspring he brought with him to Egypt. And beginning with verse 8 and listing all the way down, uh, as we get to verse 25, is the listing of all 
the leaders of the clans, the sons and the grandsons. I believe that the point that Moses is giving is not to give an accurate uh, summary of everyone as much to list out who the leaders of the clans are. And so we get to verse 26. All the persons belonging to set to Jacob who came into Egypt were, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Just know that as Moses writes this, that group has grown over to a million. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel's father in Goshen. And presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you're still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brother and, and gave them a possessions in the land of Egypt and the best of the land, the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. You may be seated. Imagine for a second that you're Joseph, or you're Jacob. You know, you had a love of your life, though you had four wives. One that you loved more than others, Rachel. Again, we don't look at these individuals as to teach us about marriage, all right? Don't think, okay, it's good to have more than one wife. No, these are not models of morality. Jesus is a model for morality, but they are a context in which it demonstrates the workings of God. And so here you have this man in sin with m- numerous wives, one that he loves more than others. Uh, therefore, he you know, is despising the others for that. And not only does he love Rachel more than others, he uh, loves her sons more than others. Joseph becomes the beloved son. But uh, Benjamin is born, and in so doing, Rachel dies prematurely, and he loses his love. I would present to you that he perhaps loved Rachel more than God. 
And all of that affection, that love, goes and is now displaced and put upon Joseph and Benjamin. But Joseph, being the oldest one, is the one that he now, I would say, loved more than God himself. And so it becomes his idol. His hopes and dreams are uh, fleshed out in this man named Joseph. And now Joseph has been taken away and all that he has is Benjamin. And his hopes and dreams are on Benjamin. He says, you know what, whatever you do, do not take Benjamin away. I could not bear it. And I will die. And then you find out after 22 long years that your boy of 17 is alive and well, now 39. And not only is he alive and well, he's prospering and influential as a leader in the most wealthy nation of the world, second in command. And he has given word to you through your sons and says, if you will just come down to Egypt, you will see me and I will take care of you. You will never for the rest of your days worry about money, For you are your family. Remember, they're in a two-year famine. Five more years to go. (laughs) You're hard-pressed financially. That seems like one of the situations you just don't have to pray about, does it? I mean, here it is. God's at work. My son's alive. I'm going to him. I don't have to worry about money. Let me go. We've seen that it's been the trademark of Jacob that he will go first and then deal with the consequences later. And then maybe he'll pray about it. That's kind of been one of his hallmarks as he initiates and the blessings that come from him. It's come from God. And and, and yet he seems to have forgotten that. And notice what he does. I think is extremely significant where normally he would just go on down. He does not. And here we see the turning point in Jacob's life. Verse 1 He takes, Israel took his journey, and he comes only as far south as Beersheba, and he offers sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Why? Why does he do that? First of all, you need to know, Beersheba is very significant to him and his family. Beersheba is where his father lived. It's where Jacob perhaps grew up and left. It is where his grandfather, Abraham, also was was camped out. It marked the southern border of the land promised to his father and his father's father. It was the promised land and he was on the very edge of it. He could have looked and seen Perhaps the uh, ruins of his daddy's altar that he built there in worship of God. And here he was at the edge and he offers worship and consults with God before he leaves the promised land. That's huge. It is a, a expression of repentance because we find that in this passage that there is fear in his heart about going to Egypt. Why would he be fearful about seeing his, his beloved son? Why would he be fearful about going to a land of financial prosperity where he loses concern and worry and anxiety about knowing him and his family? Why would he be afraid? Because he's afraid of leaving the presence of God. He is repenting and he is exalting God more than his son. Let me just tell you something important here. He's 130. (laughs) He thinks that he is in the last legs of his journey. You are never too old to repent. You're never too old to repent. If, if, If 
this happens in Jacob's life, understand that there is always the power and possibility to turn your heart to God. You know what happens? I've, I run across some folks that, it, you know, they have lived a long time and, and the doctors are telling them that, uh, that, that their life is about over. Just go ahead and settle their affairs and, 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 and get with it. And I'll talk to them. I say, listen, there is forgiveness with you. And I will plead with them and share the gospel. And you would think that they will just turn like that. Listen, you need to understand that most people will die the same way they lived. And here's the justification why I've heard him say it many, many times. Well, I've lived all my life without trusting in Jesus, with making him Lord and King and asking him to forgive my sins. I believe I'm a good person. I'm not the best person in the world, but I believe I'm a good person. And one thing I am is I am consistent. I am not a hypocrite. And if I turn around now and, and make Jesus my King and ask him to forgive him the last years of my life, well, that's just not consistent with me. I won't do that. And they make it sound noble. (laughs) Well, that's awful noble of you that you're consistent. You've got such a good uh, view of your living and your character that if, you know, if, if nothing else, at least you're not a hypocrite. And their moral superiority will keep them from asking God forgive them of their sins and trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Because they don't want to be inconsistent. But you know, it's hard after you lived all your life not trusting in Jesus to do so then. And here's something we'll tell ourselves. I've done this for so many years. I can't change. I can't change. I don't want to change. I can't do that. And we will have sin in our life that we don't have to be so old to have long habits of sin and sinful desires in our life. It starts young. And it continues and we tell ourselves, God can't change me. This is who I am. Sorry, God, this is who I am. You're just going to have to take me as I am. And we think, well, isn't that what God does? Yes, God takes you as you are, but he will not leave you as you are because he loves you too much. He takes you and says, I will forgive you, but walk with me in this journey in being Christ-likeness. And he will change your heart. It is something God can do. And if we tell ourselves, I I don't believe that God can change me. I'm just going to have to deal with this. This is just who I am. You might as well not come here and pretend like you worship God. Because you have just declared to yourself and to God that your sin is bigger than God. I happen to believe that if God can raise Jesus from the dead, if God can rise Lazarus from the dead, and I look at my sin, I think, God, you know how powerful this sin is in my life, but it's not as powerful as death. If you can raise Lazarus from the dead, if you can rise Jesus, raise him up from the dead, can you not raise my soul up from this sinful condition? Can you not change my heart, even if I've got a lifetime of bad habits? You are not too old. To repent. And your sin has not been with you too long. God can change your heart. He did so with Israel, with Jacob. Now, we see a major decision that that Jacob does here. And it tells us something else. Repentance is reflected in his decision. Repentance is reflected in our decisions. You want to know what repentance looks like? You look at your decisions in life. 
That's how you know what your values are. What does he do here? Well, he goes and in verse 2, God speaks to him and says, Jacob, Jacob. He says, here I am. He says, I'm God, the God of your father. I think it's like God is having to reintroduce himself. Jacob, I'm not talking to you. You don't know what it's like for me to talk to you, so I'm calling you by name. And I am God. And it's been so long that he doesn't even know what God sounds like anymore. And so he says, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. He says, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And I will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand will close your eyes. In other words, you're going to be reunited with your son. And he's going to be there when you die. But one day, your line will come back here. And he makes a beautiful promise. Now, why would he be afraid? Well, you know, he told his son Isaac, or his father Isaac, God told him in Genesis 26, 2 and 3, do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I tell you. Sojourn the land. I'll be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants, I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. So that was directly given to his own daddy. God had told uh, Jacob to go into the promised land, to leave Haran, to leave Laban, to go back to the promised land. That was the last thing God told God, God told him to do. That's how we make decisions. What was the last thing God told you to do? You keep doing whatever God told you last to do until you hear clearly God speaking to you and directing you to do something else. And this is something that you see in Jacob's life. And so, despite the love of his life down there in Egypt, despite the promise of blessings and prosperity and financial welfare, he seems to be fearful. Why? Because he's learned something. Joseph is no longer the love of his life. Joseph is no longer the hope and security. Money and finances is no longer his security. He says, I would rather basically starve here in the promised land apart from my son Joseph as long as God's with me. And he was fearful to leave. Your repentance is going to be reflected in your decisions. The question that he was asking is, God, what do you want? Too many times we make decisions based on what's good for me. What do I want? Or hear me, church. Here's what we do. If it's not that, we'll say, what's the best thing for our family? You think, well, what's wrong with that, Pastor? Aren't we to be uh, uh, caring about our family? Yes. You know what the best thing you can do to care for your family? You know what the best thing for your family is have a dad and have a mom that says, I love God more than my family. And the question is not what's best for my family, but what's best for God? What does God want? And let that person be the one who loves my children, the one who loves God and cares more about them. And so that's what, what Jacob's doing here. And so the repentance is reflected in his decisions. But listen, as we keep on reading, what's going on as he's making this decision? He's offering sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. He is worshiping. Let me tell you another very important truth about repentance. You're never too old to repent. Repentance is reflected in our decisions. But listen, decisions reflect our worship. Decisions reflect our worship. It tells everyone and tells God, tells ourselves what is the most valuable thing. And whatever is least valuable will sacrifice. You want to know what you worship? All you got to do is look at the track record of your decisions. What's been 
Your decisions on your finances, your job, how you treated your family, where you've lived, who your friends have been, how you spend your leisure time and what you do for fun. All these decisions reflect who is your God. They reflect your worship. And so do you dare? I dare you. Look at your life. Examine your decisions. What do they say? It reveals your worship. I'm going to just share with you that your worship is not best done right here, right now. You sung some songs. You've listened to me. You think, well, you know, I sacrificed. I listened to the pastor. You know? Your worship is going to be done on Monday afternoon, on Thursday afternoon, on Friday afternoon, on Saturday afternoon, when you're trying to decide what will you do with your life, with your family, with your job, with your spare time. Reveals your worship. That's why Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And we're asking, how can I glorify God with how I eat? (laughs) Your decisions reflect your worship. Who is your God? See, your God you're sacrificed for. You'll give up lesser values and lesser principles to obtain that value. Your decisions reflect your worship. And so we have Jacob worshiping God. That's a beautiful thing. After the age of 130. And so he gives them beautiful promises. God does. I wonder if if he reminds reminds Jacob of many, many years when he was leaving this promised land. Going to Haran and Bethel. He had the same promise. God said, I was going to be with you. I'm going to be with you when you go up. And you're going to come back again. He says the same thing. I'm going to be with you. And you're going to go up and you're going to die. But you're going to come back again. How's that happen? Well, the family, the the nation of Israel comes back again. Have you ever wondered what was going through the mental processes of Jacob for 22 years when he first heard about his son's death or he assumed Joseph's death? 22 years, what did he think about? We get some hints when when he says that all things work against me. We get the idea that he does not believe that God is working in his life. How could he? How do you explain these things? And you know, there will be a moment in your life. And you will talk to people in your life. And they will tell you, you know what? I have a hard time believing that God is who he says he is in the Bible. Because if he is who he says he is in the Bible, he's all powerful and all loving. How do you explain this tragedy that has occurred in my life? And I think Jacob probably could say the same thing to you. I think Mary and Martha could say the same thing. In fact, did say the same thing to Jesus. You remember the story of Mary, Martha, in John chapter 11? The Bible says in that story that Lazarus, their beloved brother, was was sick and dying. And they, they pleaded, they prayed and sent word, Jesus, would you come? Because they had every belief that if Jesus could come, he would heal their brother whom Jesus loved. The Bible says that Jesus waited for three days. You think, well, what on earth could he be doing? That would be so important. The Bible doesn't say. Just waited for three days. And then he comes. By then it was too late. Lazarus was already dead, been entombed for several days. Martha asked the question that we all long to ask. Jesus, why didn't you come? God, Why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you stop that animal from killing Joseph? Surely you could have protected him. 
You fill in the blank. Martha was asking that. Jesus said, do you believe that I am the resurrection? And the question was, do you believe? John chapter 11, verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I think that would be the answer that God could have given to Jacob. If you would just believe, you would have seen the glory of God. And now that Jacob has seized a little taste of what God was doing, he realized, you know, God was working. And I see the glory of God, how he's, he's brought Joseph into a place of promise to save me and our family and our line. God is at work. I would say that the answer to your tragedy is probably the same. God says to you, If you believed, you would see the glory of God. And so Jacob realizes, oh my, for 22 years, I thought God did not care that he was inept. He was not powerful. And he was. 22 years I lived inconsolable because I did not believe. He's learned his lesson. If God can do that can take something so evil, so bad, so heinous, and make something good out of it, then I've learned that it'd be much better to stay in a famine land without Joseph, but with God, than to go to Egypt with Joseph without God. Because God can take evil things, hard things, and make good come out of it. He believed in the glory of God. And so, we have the uh, reunion and I, you know, it's, you, you find it that they come to, uh, they've set out for Be- uh, leaving out from Beersheba, going to Egypt. And you find that Judah takes the lead uh, of the sons. He's sent ahead to meet up with them. And uh, it's a beautiful picture. And it's the same picture of what Moses was dealing with, the, the tribes, as Judah was still leading out uh, in that time. And then we have Joseph coming together with uh, Jacob. And it's just a beautiful picture. And we wish there was more verses describing it. And they weep together a good while. I think, well, you know, that's, that's the happy ending we've been looking for ever since he was sold into slavery. And here it is. There's not much given about it. It's like, oh, man. But there's a, a greater lesson in this. And that is Joseph's or Jacob's repentance here. And then it's listed out all the names that's given here. We're not going to go in detail. Uh, but I believe it's just given for the tribes of Moses' day to be able to look at and say, these are the clan leaders right here. And then we see them... Uh, verse 34, Joseph gives some instructions. He says, I've got things set up just like Joseph is tending to do. He is a detailed, administrative dude. I mean, he's a great guy to have around. And he's got everything cleared up. He says, here's what you're going to do. You go and tell them that you're shepherds. He says, now you need to do something. Egyptians hate shepherds. Here's the words there. They find them as an abomination. I don't use that word by anybody. You're an abomination to me. I abhor you, you know. But that's the words that's used to describe their view of shepherds. He says, I'm going to put you in a place, and I want you to reveal something. Don't hide it. You just need to know all the Egyptians, they're going to hate you for it. They're just not going to like you. You will be subject to racism. It's okay. Ever thought about that? Why would he do that? Why would God allow these people... To be subject to intense racism. 
for 400 years. I mean, that seems so safe and, and sanitized when I say that. But if you could just get into the mud trenches where, where the 10-year-old little boy is being whipped because he's not carrying enough mud uh, to make the bricks. And that he's, that's his future day in and day out with very little food. And that's the society that he lives in. Why would God allow such things? Why would, would Joseph go in and say, just tell them you're shepherds. It's a, you know, it'll be okay. They won't like you, but you know, you'll get it in the best land. And you'll be separate. And therein is the key. You'll be separate. God evidently is allowing his people to deal with intense racism because it's better to deal with racism than their love for him to be diluted. Wow. I thought about this, thinking about all the historical Things that have happened to the nation of Israel. And it seems like a huge miracle. And it is a miracle that the nation of, of, of Israel, the Jews, are still alive today. I mean, you just study how generation after generation have hated the Jews. You see it right here in Egypt. And it could very well be that it was because of the racism. Because of the policies and hatred against the Jews, that God used the sin and evil nature of mankind and turned it around and used that to keep the people together under him. He says, well, you know what? You could be here in the capital with me and you can just migrate. And, but, you know, we look at the life of Judah and we'll find out that they will intermingle and intermarry with, with folks who did not love God and worship God and they will lose their distinctiveness, their holiness of being belonging to the Lord. He says, no. Whether they're treated well or they love God, let's let, let them love God. He will allow us to be persecuted to no end because he's preserving his holiness. That's pretty amazing. Somehow God can take something. I, I think the Holocaust is probably one of the worst things that we can think of in our imagination of what has occurred between one person against another, one people group versus another people. When, when it is okay in a society for a soldier to take a little baby, healthy, crying, and throw him in a fire in the ditch and walk on and think nothing more. God, how does that happen in a society? God says, that's the nature of man. That's the sinfulness of man. That's how they've chosen to live life apart from me. But understand, rest assured that even in man in their worst condition, God says, I will take it and I will use it to produce glory to me. Wow. And that's what he did in Egypt's day. And he still does today. When you got a God like that, I would recommend bowing down. When you got a God that's so powerful that can take the worst that man can throw at it and still twist it for his own glory and turn it for him. Why would you want to fight that one? Why would you say my desires are more important than what God wants? Do you understand something? That if you do not submit to God, you will lose what you're fighting for and desiring. And you'll lose God in the process. Jesus said, Matthew 6, 33, seek God, for seek his kingdom first, and all these things will be added unto you. But let me rest assured that if you do not seek God first, you will lose God and all these things. Agent Rogers made the statement that there are, there are no happy 
old sinners. <laughs> Satan's old people are not happy. Why? Because Satan gives the best at the first. He gives the best at the first. And you discover the worst later. But when you follow the Lord, you get the worst first. And even that's filled with joy and peace and love and kindness, gentleness. And then there's more to go that we've not yet realized. And so Jacob lived for a better country, a better land, a land not built by man. And he will willingly willingly endure racism and all kinds of evil done because he's learned a powerful lesson. Better to be in a land of famine with God than to be in the land of plenty with their son without God. I want to present to you that these last 17 years, 17 years were the best of Jacob's life. I would share with you that Jacob loved Joseph better than all of his years prior. You think, well, how could that be? He spent 22 years grieving for the loss of his son and he loved and doted on his son before that. Well, I would say to you that is that he loved him too much. He loved him more than God, making Joseph God. And that's not very loving to do to someone, to make him God. They cannot bear up. They cannot uphold those expectations and pressures. Some folks get married and they get, oh, if I just get married, everything's going to be great. And my heart's desire will be satisfied. And they put on that spouse all the things that belongs to God. And any wonder that marriage disappoints Some say, well, if I just have children, I will have meaning and fulfillment in my life. And they do, and they realize the children wasn't it. And that child will not bear up to those expectations of a mom and dad to be the source of joy and delight. Children will provide delight, but they also will provide heart pain. What's going to be your steadiness? And the heart pain. It will be God. And you will love your spouse. And you will love your children better. If you will love God more than them. Because you put them in the place that they can flourish. And you put God in the place where he belongs. And if you seek him first. And his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Here's what I would call out to you to do. Do what Jacob is learning to do. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been in your sin. And that is simply seek God. Do not settle for the appearance of religion. Seek God. Make him your heart cry. And I'm going to pray. And what I'm going to ask to do is, is if Karen will lead us in song and in piano we're going to stand together but we're not going to sing because i don't want you to be distracted from what you need to be doing and that is seeking god i don't know what your sin issue may be some may be sexuality some may be financial integrity any number of things idolatry of other sorts but the common problem is we see it more valuable and more beautiful than god and we're blind seek god 